John chapter 13 will be on the screen, but would prefer if you had a Bible in your laps or a device that you could look at would be helpful. Uh, Elizabeth had a friend growing up named Virginia, and Virginia had a sister named Amy, and Amy was a world-class model. She landed the cover of Vogue when she was 14 years old. Vogue in Italy, 14 years old. She was an Abercrombie and Finch model. Matter of fact, I remember we would go uh, down to the mall, not often, I can't stand the mall, but a couple of times we were in there and you would see this big picture of Abercrombie and Finch and go, that's her, we know her. She didn't look anything like that, actually. <laughs> she was an Estee Lauder model. She was a Tommy Hilfinger model. I mean, if I told you her last name, you could Google her and you could see all the images. She was a Christian. She actually started a ministry for models who were Christians that struggled with eating disorders. And she started to redeem that world a little bit. She tells the story about being at a casting call. And she had her portfolio there. And she handed her portfolio to the casting director. And the casting director looked at her picture looked at her, looked at the picture, looked at her, turned it around and said, is this you? (laughs) All the makeup, all the clothes, all the time, we actually become somebody that we can't even recognize. Pretty amazing how that whole industry works. What does people really look like when the makeup's off? What do people really look like and act like when they don't have their PR team or marketing team around them? We live in this celebrity culture, and I'm always intrigued by that. I'm always intrigued. What's that guy or girl actually like when nobody's around? Are they actually nice? Are they kind? I'm always intrigued by that. And if you're like me, and a lot of you are, you probably, if you're honest and you have time to think about, think, what's God really like? Like when uh, he's just with the heavenly host, is he up there? Is he being capricious like culture would lead us to believe that he's just up there wagging his finger at us? Is he up there laughing at us because we're all in this cosmic joke? Or is God up there weeping with those who are broken? And is God up there longing to bring his people home? What is God really like behind the scenes? What is his character really like? See, in John chapter 13, we get this picture of Jesus behind the scenes. There's no fanfare. It's just him and the disciples. Just a closed room. And if you want to know what God's really like, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He and the Father are one. So there's not an Old Testament God who's mean and then this New Testament God who's loving and kind. If you want to know what God's really like, you look at Christ. And you see what he's like. And here's what we see in John chapter 13. We see behind closed doors that God has a heart of God for his people. That's the first half of the one point for the day. That behind closed doors, we see God's heart for his people. What I want to do... It's a long passage. We're actually going to read it all. But I want to go kind of uh, verse by verse. We're going to kind of peel it apart uh, and stop at some places. We'll read longer at other places. But let's just get into it and allow your mind to see this scene and to see what's happening behind these closed doors as we get to see uh, who God really is. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here's a scene. The book of John, if you just take the whole book of John, chapters 1 through 11 is called the book of signs. And there's seven miracles that we see covering the first three years of Jesus' life. And then chapters 12 through 21, that, all of those chapters is called the book of glory. And that covers the last week of his life. And here Jesus is moving towards the cross. He knows his time is limited. He knows he just has a few days left. And knowing that, look at what it says in verse 1. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loves them to the end. It's an amazing, astounding thing of Christ's love. He loves you to the end. He never washes his hands with you. He never says, I've had enough of their sin. He never says, I've had enough of their prayers. They pray all the time, they never change. I've had enough of them. I can't do it anymore. When Jesus loves you, he loves you to the end. It's a beautiful phrase. I don't know if you've seen that. Sometimes we just read right through these without meditating on. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. I'm not going to stop at every verse, but I do want to stop there again and just remind us, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where God tells us there's going to be a war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of woman. And so here we know, we shouldn't be surprised, we're in a spiritual warfare. For some reason, we constantly convince ourselves that this world is all about what we can see, and it's all about flesh and blood, and it's all about the, the people that we're in disagreement with in our lives. But really what's going on, the bigger picture reality is we're living in a spiritual battle. We can't forget that. Jesus, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. So interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about verse 3 or not. But Jesus, knowing I'm from the Father and I'm going back to the Father, knowing that's where my identity is. So now I'm free to serve. Look, identity matters. If you know what Christianity teaches, if you know you're justified in the sight of God because you believe upon Christ, if you know that you're an adopted son or daughter of the king of kings, then you can hold on to things in this world a little bit more loosely. Uh, You can serve because you know your identity, like Jesus knew. My identity, I, I was with the Father, I'm going back to him, so I don't have to manipulate and get people to like me and get this world to fill all my needs. I don't have to do that, I can serve because I know where my identity is. And so that was his motivation for this really awkward, delicate, intimate moment. He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garment, just picture it, and he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. And the disciples surely would have started to whisper, what exactly is happening right now? Like, this is not normal. If I took off this jacket and started to unbutton this shirt, eventually it would get awkward. I'm not sure at what point it would get awkward, but there would be, a, it would be pretty awkward for me early on. Y'all might last a little bit longer, but maybe not. But it would eventually get very awkward. It would eventually get very intimate. And eventually you'd say, what is happening right now? 
And well, that's the same thing that Jesus says when he rises. He, he takes off this outer tunic. He has an under tunic. He takes the towel, and the disciples would have been going, wait, what? What's he about to do? What is happening? This never happens. Um, it's a sign of Jesus wanting to show once again that he's here as one of us to show us how to get home to God the Father. I, I, every now and then I'll do a chapel for our academy, and uh, I don't like to do it. I say yes because I'm the senior pastor and I have to say yes. I can't say no. But there are elementary school students, and I know I don't know how to teach Second graders, like I know enough to know I'm not good with that aid. You know, they require vis- uh, visual things and third graders, they learn differently. They can't think uh, conceptually yet. And so you have to do all kinds of different things. And so I did, I might've told you this, I did a chapel a couple years ago. Uh, I was a pretty young pastor at the time and I wanted to talk about God's incarnation that he took on our flesh. And so I came in, it was a Tuesday morning, and I wore my clerical robe, you know, like the big black robe that you would have for like a wedding or a funeral or something like that. And I walked, and all the teachers were like, what is going on? This guy is taking himself way too seriously. But I had gone to the academy beforehand, and I asked them, do you have an outfit, like a, a Mitchell Road Academy outfit in my size? Like, can I get the shirt? Can I get the shorts? Can I get all that stuff? Yeah, we got that. We'll give it to you. They actually charged me for it. I was like, I have to pay for this? And uh, I, I put on the robe, and I walked in, and I was preaching. My, and people were like, this is weird. We've never had anybody wear a robe before. And I'm preaching on the incarnation. And as I was preaching, I said, God, he left He left the universal right to be known as the king of kings when he took on our flesh. And I unzipped the robe and I laid it aside and I said, and he has the same clothing that you have, the clothing of humanity, because he wants to come to where you are and let you know that you're loved. And I had the academy shirt. You know what they did? You know what those elementary school kids did? They clapped. They cheered because they haven't grown too old yet. They're young enough to still wonder at the amazement of it all that we have a God that would be willing to come to us and take on our flesh and feel our pains and feel our struggles so that we would know we've got a friend for sinners. And they went, that's amazing. We're adults. We just sit on our hands now. We just take it as more information And we forget to wonder at it all that this is the king of the universe who is now going to wash these disciples' feet who don't even figure out or know what's happening. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now. That's the understatement of the century. But afterwards you'll understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash your feet, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Now, first of all, uh, let me just talk about this culturally. This was a common thing. Uh, people would have sandals, dusty roads. They're not in gold toe socks like most of you are in this room. So their feet would get dirty. And it was either the servant would wash the master's feet or the disciples would wash the rabbi's feet or the wife would wash the husband's feet. That's how it worked. And if you had a really good wife, 
uh, and this was common in Jewish lore, if you had a really good life, once you got married, the wife would say, no longer will a servant ever wash your feet. I will now wash your feet. Not all wives did that, but some wives did that. I'm not suggesting you bring that up. I'm not suggesting you talk about it. I don't even think it's worth a joke. It's not going to fly. Just let that whole thing go from your memory. But it was a sign of devotion. It wasn't just something perfunctory. It was a sign of, I'm devoted to you. Now, if you understand it from that context, that really what's happening is not just something practical. Really what's happening here is a sign of devotion from somebody to somebody else. Here we see Jesus saying, look, I'm devoted to you. Every one of those disciples looking at him in the eyes, washing their feet. I mean, can you imagine taking those calloused heels, taking the water, pouring it over, hearing the water hit back into the basin, the king of kings on his knees with a towel wrapped around his waist, looking at these grummy Jews and Greeks who can't even figure out what's happening, saying, the wonder of it all is I'm going to serve you. I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing scene. And that's our God. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We don't ever have to worry about him breaking up with us. He's not disappointing us. He's not fed up with us. You don't have to have a performance review. Jesus doesn't meet with you every quarter and say, I thought we were going to try to get 20,000 this quarter. You only got 15. We're going to have to pick it up a little bit, or I'm not sure we'll have a, a place for you a year from now. You don't have a quarterly performance year with Jesus. He serves you, and he loves you. Verse 9, Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but now my hands and my head. And Jesus said, the one who has bathed you does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And Jesus said in verse 10, the one who has bathed you does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, this is an interesting and somewhat complicated text. Let me simplify it. What scholars, commentators, pastors, what I myself think is this. What Jesus is trying to communicate is the word for bathing here is different from the word for washing. And the word for bathing is you've got to get clean. We're going to clean all of you. And so when Peter said, well, wash my head and wash my hands and wash all this, Jesus is rejecting that. He's saying, look, the gospel is going to clean you, all of you. All of your sins are covered. All of your sins are paid for. You are justified right now, if you're a believer, if you believe in Christ, you're justified right now before the sight of God. And man, you are clean. But that doesn't mean you still don't need to confess your sins. That doesn't mean you still don't need to wash uh, that just because you confessed once, look, you don't have to keep walking the aisle over and over again and recommitting yourself, and now we really mean that. No, you're clean. You've bathed. But still, we pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we, we need the daily washing. We need daily confession. That still has to happen. The gospel is not something you believe in once. It's something you believe in, and you keep believing it. You keep using it. You keep living in it. Let me put it this way. You get cancer. Uh, You go to the surgeon. Uh, He puts you under. You wake up. The surgeon says to you, 
we got it all. We got every last bit of it. But you're going to need to come back next week for a scan just to make sure nothing's coming back. Of course you go back for the scan. (laughs) You're never going to say, oh, no, I'm good. I never need to go back for a scan. I never need another checkup. No, you're going to say, yes, I have been clean. It's been taken from me. And now I will keep looking for ways that sin is intersecting my life. And I'm going to keep washing. I'm going to keep doing this daily faith and repentance and trusting the Lord more and more and falling in love with him again and again and again. Verse 12, when he washed their feet and put on the outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives receives me, receives the one who sent me. So interesting. But look at what he says in verse 15. This is the part I want to highlight from that longer passage. He says, basically, I'm a walking parable. I, I've, I have shown you this so that you would know how to live. Not just, okay, I'm going to trust God once. I don't need him anymore. I am a walking illustration, a walking parable of how you're to live with other people as you come in contact with them. And I'm telling you these things before they happen, and then they will happen. And then verse 21, you've probably, if you've read this passage before, if you grew up in church or if you know this passage, you've probably read John 13 a billion times. You've probably never meditated on verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Here he's washing Judas' feet. He's looking at him, and he knows he doesn't get it. He knows Judas is about to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Probably could have got a higher price but settled for 30 pieces of silver. And I don't think that God here, look at the heart of God. I don't think he's mad at Judas. I think he's sad for him. I think he's sad because he knows he's not going to be able to deal with the grace of God. He's going to try to give that money back. They're going to throw the money at him because it's blood money. They're going to buy a field with it. He's going to hang himself, fall from those gallows, and have his intestines burst open. And Jesus sees the whole thing happening, and he looks at him, and his soul is troubled and sorrowful. Not, I don't think it's because of what he's going to go through, but it's because of what Judas is going through because he doesn't understand that the king is there to help. The king is there to get him home. And he, he can't figure that out, and his spirit is troubled in his spirit. He's sorrowful. Look, just, just so you know, and we can talk about theology, and we do all the time, but as it says in Scripture, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If you want to see the heart of God, he doesn't rejoice 
over the brokenness of this world. He grieves over it. He's sorrowful for it. He longs to make it right and put it back together. Then verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, that's speaking of John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. (laughs) I mean, I don't have time to go into this. I could preach this text a lot. But just the scene of Simon Peter going, hey, John, John. John, ask, ask him who he's talking about. Is it me? Is it you? Is it Thaddeus? Like, find out. So John's, that's the whole scene. So Jesus said, it is he who I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, interestingly, if you read this carefully, they still haven't figured it out. Even though he said, I'm going to dip this, I'm going to give it to somebody, he does that, and they still don't know what's happening, that it's Judas. They still can't figure it out. How do we know that? Well, the next verse, verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving this morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. I want you to see just one, two quick points on that last passage, and here it is. There's an incredible grace of God, and then there's a warning of God right here in that last section. Here's the grace of God. The grace of God is, amazingly, he didn't shame him. He didn't dress him down. Uh, he, didn't, he, he gave an amazing amount of grace to Judas, even in the midst of knowing that he was going to betray him. Whatever you're going to do, just go ahead and do it, Judas. Just get it over with, would you? I mean, the, the grace of the heart of God to just allow it to happen. And then there's a warning, and the warning is he let Judas go to his own sin. And that's the warning, isn't it? I mean, the deep warning here is that God might say to us at some time too, just go ahead and do what you want to do anyway and not prevent us from sinning and not bring us back. That's the scary thing about this little section. That's why David prayed, for example, in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I know I've sinned, but keep reeling me in, God. I need it. Don't let me walk away into the darkness. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God also will glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while while I am with you, you'll seek me. And just as I've said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so also you love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're going to talk about this uh, more in a little bit, but let me just kind of highlight this. Why is it a new command? Uh, From the Old Testament, We've always said, love God, love God, love God. Why is loving now a new command? Because now, with Christ, you see the example of how to love, and you have the power to love. That's why it's a new command. They're in a new day. So verse 38, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but 
you will follow afterwards. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So interesting here, because here's what Christ is saying. I'm going to walk the road to Golgotha that you can't walk. Only I can do this. Only I can bear this. Only I can, uh, who am altogether holy, have never sinned. Only I can assuage the wrath of God by going to the cross. I can only walk this road. Peter, you can't walk it. I have to do this for you. But Peter, you're going to walk a road too. And I'm going to be with you in it. And your road is going to include denying me. And it's going to break your heart. But in the end, and we'll see it in John chapter 21, after he denies Jesus three times, Jesus restores him three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And in the end, even though he had to walk that road of denying Jesus, in the end, that meant he understood the love of Christ more, not less. Because he knew what it was like to deny him. Not once, not twice, not three times. Thinking he was sufficient enough, strong enough to not ever do that. And after his sin, after denying him three times, he understands a deeper level of the love of God from him being restored. Now there's a lot. Let me just summarize it with these two points and then we'll get kind of to the final point. These are not points, they're just a way to summarize this. The first thing we see is that Jesus serves those who betray him. He serves those who betray him. He washes the feet of Judas, who's going to sell him out, go to the authorities, tell them the time and place where Jesus is going to be so they can arrest him without fanfare. He's going to betray him with a kiss. Jesus is then going to be beat upon, He's, he's going to be beat to within an inch of his life. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit upon. They're going to put a, a crown of thorns on his head, and they're going to write on the cross the king of the Jews in three different languages so nobody misses the joke. And then they're going to drive nails through his hands, and they're going to put that thing into the ground, which is going to jar him, and he's going to sit up there taking all the anguish, all the pain, all the wrath, being the perfect ultimate sacrifice on this day of atonement, being pierced in his side, crying out in love, it is now finished. No more excuses. And he's going to do all of that with that understanding in mind, when he's washing the feet of Judas, knowing that he's inaugurating all of that. He's going to wash the feet of the person who's going to betray him and bring all of that to bear. So what's your excuse for not serving? If Jesus is willing to serve those who will betray him, what's your excuse for not serving? Don't tell me you don't want to take cookies to your neighbor because last year they had a different political sign in their yard that you wouldn't like. Don't tell us that. What, seriously? Don't tell me you're not going to invite that kid at the lunchroom who doesn't have another kid to sit with, but you're not going to invite them to your table to sit with you because you're afraid it's going to bring your stock down at school. Don't. 
Don't tell me you're not going to find a way to encourage your competitor at work because you're afraid you might give away trade secrets. Don't tell me, for example, that you're not going to serve your kids or your wife or somebody in your community because they were mean to you last week. Is, is that the game we really want to play? When Jesus says, this is the example I give you for how to live life. I'm going to wash the feet of my betrayer. Now you go out there and do the same thing. Find somebody to serve. That's astounding. And then Jesus, here's the second kind of summary point. Jesus restores those who deny him. Verses 31 through 38 kind of talk through how Jesus is going to restore. He not only washes Judas' feet, but he restores that heart of Peter, which went sideways. And it just reminds us how big the grace of God is. I've got a long quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor, uh, as we call him in the business. Uh, I think it's up there. Dr. Jones says it this way. He says, to make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. After I've explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say, now are you ready to say that you're a Christian? And they hesitate. And then I say, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And so often people say, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And that once I know that I've been wasting my breath, they're still thinking in terms of themselves that they have to do it. It sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. And I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and saying I'm not good enough, I'm sorry, or, oh, I'm not good enough. You're denying God, and you're denying the gospel, and you're denying the very essence of the faith, and you'll never be happy. You think you'll be better at times, and then again, you'll find yourself you're not as good at other times than you thought you were, and you'll be up and down like that forever. How can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you've almost entered into the depths of hell. It does not matter if you are guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You're no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. Sometimes I think what we deny about God is his unbelievable grace to us. His ability to say, I know, look, I know you're a sinner. And I know you sinned this week. I know you sinned this morning. I know you sinned last night. I know you've denied me. I know all those things about you. Just come back. Just enjoy me. Don't deny the amount of my grace for you. The level of which I've gone to, to cover all of your sins. Don't deny that. Come back to me. There's no reason, Christian, right now that you f- shouldn't feel completely uh, at ease with God in his presence because the cross of Christ has covered every roadblock that you could possibly put between you and him. He has completely reconciled God to man and we just need to enjoy that. I'm not making light of it, but so what you sinned last week? Confess it and come back. So what that you're struggling with this? Confess it, ask for mercy and power to fight it, and come back. And just enjoy Jesus again. Get your hearts to enjoy him. Because here's what he does. We see a heart of God for the people of God, and then he gives, this is a second part of the point, and then he gives his people a new heart. 
It's a heart of humility and a heart of love. Have you ever wanted to, um, I have, maybe it's just me. Have you ever wanted to climb into somebody else's body? Oh my word. I've wanted to, I, I would just love to climb into Pavarotti's body and feel what it's like to have a voice come out of you like that, you know? I'd love to climb into uh, uh, Brady's body, Tom Brady, and, and take a seven-step drop and figure out what it's like in the pocket. I'd, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to climb into Adam Scott's body. You may or may not know him. He's an Australian golfer, and he's gorgeous. I'd love to climb into his body, and my wife would love that as well. We would both enjoy that <laughs> very much. And there's actually a story about that that I can't tell right now, but ask me privately, and I'll share another story about that. But I, I've often thought, if I could just climb into Adam Scott's body, this gorgeous guy with a beautiful swing, and if I could just feel how he moves one time, that would be the only golf lesson I would ever need. I just need to know what it feels like within his body to make that ball move like that. Well, here's the beautiful thing. Here's what happens in Christianity. God actually climbs into your body. He climbs into your body. (laughs) He gives us his Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, and he comes into you with his indwelling spirit and says, I'm going to make you a new creation. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm now going to live inside you so you can be humble and loving and become more like me. I think we forget that. I think we think that Jesus cleaned us up and then we got to go try to make use of it. Jesus cleaned us up on the cross and now we've got to go somehow keep it going. He cleans us up and then he says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. My Holy Spirit will live in you if you ever need power or strength or conviction. The indwelling Holy Spirit of God himself lives in you to give you everything you need. Have you ever meditated on that? Have you ever thought through that? Have you ever enjoyed that? That That's what's happening in Christianity. God himself now lives in you so that you have everything you need. And so that you and I can become more like him. Humble and loving. Let me just prove that out to you a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 36. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. And then in John 14, we'll see this next week. But in John 14, that's the whole thing that Jesus is talking about. I'm actually going to give you my spirit when I leave you. John 16, he's going to bring up the same thing. These things I've spoken to you while I'm with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you and he'll bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled and let them not be afraid. And so God gives us his Holy Spirit, he climbs in us. It's unbelievable. So that we can live like Christ lived, with humility and love. Let me just end with that. With humility and love. That's what I'm asking of you today. To enjoy and to ask the Holy indwelling Spirit to give you humility and give you love. Why? Because who in this world doesn't need humility? You know what this world needs? You know what this culture needs? You know what this economy needs more than anything else? Humility. Humility. Not the pat answers. Not the prideful retorts. Not the easy believism. You know what this world needs? Humility. You know who are the leaders in that? Us. Christians are meant to be 
the leading driving force to show this world humility. Not groping for more power, not always having to be right, learning to be humble. And we're the leaders for the entire world. Like, I'm not overstating this. This is not pastor hyperbole. For the entire world, Christians are supposed to be the leaders for how to be humble. And God said, this is the example, and you should go do it the way I've done it. Wash the feet of the people that are going to betray you and the people that are going to deny you. Um, Joseph Franz was an emperor. He died in either 1914 or 1917. I can't remember. Slipped my mind. I meant to look at it between services, but forgot. His courtage, uh, which is a funeral procession, his courtage came to this monastery where he was going to be buried, and they opened a little sliding door. They knocked on the door. They opened a little sliding, you know, window. Uh, Who do you have there? They asked this big funeral procession. The monk did. And uh, they said, we have Franz Joseph, the emperor of Australia uh, Austria and the king of Hungary. And you know what the monk did? He shut the door. That was it. Shut. Doesn't matter. They knocked again. Who do you have? And this is what the historian says. The herald replied, We have Franz Joseph, the emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, Bohemia, Galatia, Laodomira, Dalmatia, the grand duke of Transylvania, the musgrave of Moravia, the duke of Styria. It's amazing. We don't even know those places anymore, you know? That, that, I didn't hear Pickens in there, but he probably owned that too. <laughs> they shut the door. We, we don't care about any of that. The monk shut the door. They wouldn't let them in. They said, the historian that recorded said that everybody was just kind of baffled. They knocked on the door one more time, and the monk opened the door. Yeah, here we go again. What are you going to add? What does he own now? Uh, who do you have there? And they finally responded, we have Franz Joseph, a poor sinner, humble, who's begging for God's mercy. And they threw the doors open. Well, we'll take him. We'll bury him in our courtyard. Somebody who's humble, who realizes that before the sight of God, you're nothing. We'll take that guy. Look, this world needs humility. And you know what humility looks like a lot in this world? Listening. Not having the pat answer. Finding somebody who you might not agree with, who might not have the same background as you, a friend, somebody on your team, and listening to their story. And, and listening to their pains and their struggles. And then God, if you do that, God will show you a place where you can apply the gospel. But caring more for others than you do for yourself, that's what humility looks like. C.S. Lewis says it this way, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, that he's a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And when we put ourselves uh, in this scene, when we put ourselves before this king of kings, we realize that life really is not about all the relational manipulation strings. It really is about just learning how to be humble and serve. 
and to love. Uh, I just, I loved it this past week. We had Vacation Bible School, which has already been mentioned, but I just love watching these former executives from Michelin put on these, uh, you know, these outfits that we are all wearing, which are just ridiculous, and getting on the floor and playing with third graders and teaching them crafts. And I thought, that's the gospel. This, this guy that used to run the division or used to run this part of a corporation being willing to get down on the floor with third graders to try to teach them. That's humility. That's what the world needs. Now, you can work that out in whatever context you need to for you, but it's humbling and it's being a servant. And then it's love. Uh, Spurgeon, I'll close with this. Spurgeon says, God is always good, but he's at his best when you're at your worst. God loves you even when you're not all together. And we're called to love. Jesus loves Peter. Even though Peter denied him, he loves him. And friends, I'll say this one last time. As Christians, what this world needs is love. And we're the leaders of that. We're the ones that make that happen because we have the Holy Spirit that lives within us and makes it possible. So here's what we're going to do. This is um, I, unlike we don't normally do this, but we're going to do it. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. Don't worry. This is not going to be cheesy. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Nobody's going to walk an aisle. We're not going to light a candle. So just relax. Everybody relax. Close your eyes. I can see who don't have their eyes closed. I'm up here. Close your eyes. Here's what I want you to do, because there's only so much work that I can do for you. You've got to do some of this work yourself. This is partly a prayer and partly other things, but just follow me. I want you to think about what you're prideful in. Your ability, what hobby, what you think about what's right or wrong with the world, where you feel like you've got it figured out politically or otherwise. Maybe you're prideful in your kids. Maybe you're prideful in your success. Maybe you're prideful in your looks or your athleticism. What are you prideful in? Now go ahead and take that to the Lord and see what he thinks about it. And allow him to humble you. When you see it in the light of eternity. And now I want you to think about who you need to serve. A classmate, somebody in your community group, a shut-in, Maybe it's the person sitting beside you. A friend. A spouse. A kid. A mom. A dad. Now that you're humble, who do you need to serve? And now I want you to think about somebody who's hard to love that friend that gossiped about you that curmudgeon 
who sits beside you at work. That person who annoys you in your community group. That lover. Who do you need to love? And ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power to do it. And ask the Holy Spirit to remind you that you have a new heart and that you're a new creation. And now, I just want you to think on Christ. Allow these pictures, these words to flow into our minds that he served us, washed these disciples' feet with a twinkle in his eye. And he let Judas leave with sorrow in his heart. And he did it all for us. And that he'll love us to the very end. And just like Peter jumped out of that boat and ran back to him, allow yourself, allow your heart to get cheerful again. Because of who God is and how he loves us. And enjoy your Savior And remind yourself that even though you might have sinned or struggled, you can come back to him even now and enjoy his presence because it's all been paid for and covered. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we love you. Make us a humble, loving people. Give us a new heart, the heart of Christ. Thank you for showing us behind closed doors what you're really like. We pray in your name. Amen.